Lord, we ask you to bless this time, bless us as we look at this time. Show us what you would want us to see from all of this, and we thank you for your word and your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 16, starting at verse 25, we have Paul and Silas in Philippi. They've been ministering in Philippi, and we had the individual that was following them with the demon in her that kept saying, you know, these are, these are the servants of God, listen to them. Paul got upset about it after a while and cast out the demon. The owner, the masters of her decided that, uh, well, this was bad news. She can't, she can't give, you know, tell the future anymore. Uh, and they managed to get Paul and Silas arrested. They were beat without being, being tried. And we left them being thrown into prison on the inner part of the prison. So we're looking at this to, at 25. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison awakened out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had fled. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So we're going to stop there because there's a lot just in this little section. Paul and Silas had been arrested. They had been beaten with rods, thrown into the, the innermost prison, locked up in stocks, <laughs> And what do we find them doing at midnight? <laughs> Singing praises to God and praying. And it notes that the prisoners heard them. Now, I kind of think this is interesting because something was happening in the hearts of the prisoners as well through all of this praise. Number one, they're probably being irritated. What are, the, what are these guys singing songs for at midnight? <laughs> um, you know... Uh, why would they? Why would these crazy guys be singing songs after they've been beaten? Uh, you know, so we don't know all of what was going on, but you know, kind of think of how you would think. You know, you know, these guys are being drug in after being beat. They're locked up in stocks, and now they're singing praises. Probably bring you know, bringing some very interesting ideas on what. <laughs> What drugs are these guys on? You know, well, we want we want some of their drugs. You know that they can be happy after having been beaten and thrown into prison. Uh, and we see that all of a sudden there's an earthquake. Now we know that this was a supernatural earthquake by the description of what happened. You know, first thing that happened were all the doors were opened. Normally on an earthquake, you might have some doors open. You might have some that get uh, jammed shut because things fall on them. All the doors were open, which may or may not happen. But the other part that we know was supernatural is all the, all the stocks and stuff opened up. All right. This was not just your everyday normal earthquake that made the walls fall down. As a matter of fact, you'll note that no walls fell down were mentioned if no walls fell down. He had shook the foundation of it, the doors opened, and the stocks fell, <laughs> fell open. Uh, and usually if you shake the foundation, you have an earthquake big enough to shake the foundations of the building, it's going to drop the walls. So this is a supernatural event that's being described here. And everybody is now basically free. They, they, you know, 
And you would have thought, just as the jailer did, doors are all open, I have no prisoners. Now, it's bad enough to lose prisoners in today's world. You're going to get fired, lose your job. You know, somebody is going to get fired. Somebody is going to be disciplined. But in the Roman days, you lost your prisoners. You were executed. So this guy's going to save the, save the bosses a little bit of trouble. He's going to execute himself uh, ahead of time. He, he figures it's better than to be beat. And, and, and so he's drawing his sword. And Paul calls out to him and says, we are all here. Now, I find this very strange. Why did none of the prisoners run out of their cells when they had an opportunity? And I don't have a real answer for this, but I believe it was supernatural that God would not let them escape. It could be that there was so much interest in what was going on in Paul and Silas' cell that maybe they all, instead of running for the exits, ran to go see these guys and ask what was going on. And we don't really know what happened, but Paul's saying everybody is still here. And this is going to be a shocking thing because I can tell you at the prison where I work, if they opened up the gates and everybody had a chance to get out, we would have a very empty prison. <laughs> All right. Um, and yet in this situation, the prisoners all stayed. And Paul's saying, they're all, we're all right here. Don't kill yourself. And I've always thought this was an interesting statement that, you know, they had the opportunity to go and nobody went. And why? We don't know. There's not enough explanation as to why. You know, Paul was able to say they're all here. So I have this feeling, kind of this feeling that they all ended up in Paul's cell trying, trying to say, tell us more about this, you know, God that you're serving. We know you're in here for, for worshiping your God. And now you, you're worshiping and you're excited and, and everything in the middle of the night. So I can't prove it because there's not enough there. But Paul is able to say everybody's here to, to save him from killing himself. So why, we don't know. But this is an interesting thing, and I love the idea that they're worshiping God at midnight after having been beaten. And they could have been crying, crying the blues, and you know, just like everybody else would have been doing. They could have been complaining, we didn't deserve this. We'd... But that is not how they responded to the persecution. They, persecuted, they responded to the persecution by praising God. And I think this is important for us as Christians. How do we respond to activities that we think are unfair to us? Unfortunately, most of the time, we complain. We complain. At the very least, we complain to God. And if we're not really being spiritual, we complain to everybody else that will listen to us. You know, well, you know, if this just, if I, if, it, if this just isn't fair, I, this should not be happening to me, and we make sure everybody knows how we've been wronged. And we're going to see by the end of this chapter, Paul had great grounds for being, being upset. He's a Roman citizen who had been beaten and thrown into jail without, without a trial. You know, Paul had every reason to complain and gripe, and, and, and we find that he is celebrating and worshiping God. You know, and this is so beautiful for us to see his response. Because he's the same one in Thessalonians is going to tell people to rejoice 
in all things. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything, give thanks. Worship God. You know, over and over, he's telling people, give thanks. And now we see that this is how he lived. He lived in a way that gave thanks, even when if we, if we were in his point, we probably would not have been singing praises in midnight after having been beaten. Now, some might, some won't, but most of us would not be singing praises at midnight. Now, given the right grace and the right mercy, we might say, well, God, thank you for all of this and thank you for what you're doing and be rejoicing. But for the most part, that's not us. It's not me anyway. Uh, I'm getting better at rejoicing when bad things happen. I'm better at, at saying, God, you've got a plan. I'm getting better at it. But Paul was seemingly there. And so they were worshiping and, and praising, and he calls out to the jailer. Um, again, what is happening in this? Is Paul getting prophecies from the Holy Spirit to say we're all here? Did they show up in his cell to know that they're all there? Did God just say they're not, they're not going to be there? They're, they're not gone? We don't know. How did he know the jailer was getting ready to kill himself? You know, it doesn't say that the jailer was standing in his cell looking in. You know, did he hear the sword come out? You know, we don't, we don't know. Again, we don't know. Or is this God said, tell him that everybody's here. Yeah, and I, and I kind of wish there was more details to some of this stuff uh, so that we might know a little more about this. You know, but Paul did have a relationship with God that he was able to speak. When he's being taken to Rome, on, by the end of this book, he gets taken to Rome, and they're going to get ready to be driven by the storm. And he told them first, we should, God says that we're not supposed to take, you know, leave because it's too dangerous. Uh, they go out and, you know, they're assuming, of course, that you didn't want to go just because you're a prisoner. You don't want to go to Rome. And they didn't know he wanted to get to Rome. And then when they says, we're going to have this crash, nobody is to leave the boat or they're going to die. But as long as they stay with the boat, nobody dies. The, the boat will be gone, but no life. And sure enough, nobody died. You know, uh, God spoke to him and talked to him a lot in some very clear ways. And I've never had God talk to me very, that clearly in most cases. Uh, only one time do I think I've ever heard an audible voice of God, and it was, a, you know, it was kind of a strange thing to, for him to say. It, but I have had times when I know God is telling me something. You know, how did Paul know all this? I don't know. Maybe we weren't supposed to know, probably. Otherwise, it would have been in there. You know, God didn't want us to know how it happened because then we would say, this is how God works. It's very strange how we as human beings decide that this is what God's got to do. And we usually go on our experience. Well, this is how he did it last time, so he must be going to do it this way again. Well, the fortunate thing that we have in the Bible is God doesn't do the same thing more than once. And he keeps doing things different ways. And I think that's part of the reason we're not told exactly how Paul knew this, but he calls out to the man and says, we are all here. Everybody's here. Nobody, nobody has ran away. And again... If we think about this, that's an amazing miracle in and of itself. No prisoner ran away from the prison when the doors were open and the chains came off of them. And and we don't. And again, we don't know why. Couldn't God bring us all the prisoners away? He could have kept them in their cells. It could be that everybody was so interested in why Paul and Barnabas were rejoicing at midnight because it said, and they heard them. 
Maybe they all ended up in Paul's cell trying to find out, you know, tell us more about this God, and we don't know. You know was it a supernatural thing where God just would not let them move and leave the, leave the prison? We don't know, but Paul says we're, everybody's here. Nobody has run away. And it says next, the gate, that the keeper of the prison, um, suppose, you know, Paul cried, oh, we're all here, and then verse 9, and he called for a light and sprang in, came trembling and, and fell down from before Paul and Silas. So he calls for a light. He goes to all the cells or whatever. He finds, he does a roll call, <laughs> finds that it is true that everybody's there. Uh, you know, and I'm sure that roll call happened in these prisons probably as much or more than they did even in our day and age. Our, in, in our day and age, they have roll, they, they do a, they do roll call four times a day. Uh, you know, the only thing that I'm kind of interested in is that they do the roll call at the same time every single day. And, you know, they keep telling us that you're not supposed to do things in that much of a pattern, and yet they know exactly, the prisoners know exactly when they're going to have bed checks, when they have to be in their dorms to be counted. Uh, so you can do anything you want in between those bed counts, <laughs> but you have, to be, you have to be where you're supposed to be at that right time. Uh, and, you know, it's, it is what it is. And I'm sure, you know, and part of it is for my job. My, I'm, a, I'm an educator. I'm a tr an instructor there. My class is between such and such and such and time. Well, they have their count. They go to breakfast. They go to class. And then they go to count. <laughs> and they go to lunch. And they go to class. And then they go to count. <laughs> you know, and then if they have evening classes, they go to evening classes. And they have a count. So the time between the counts so that everything that I do would be... <laughs> allowable, you know, because I would hate it if they decided, well, today we're going to have a count at 9 o'clock, tomorrow we're going to have a count at 10 o'clock, you know, the next day we'll have a count at 12 o'clock. Uh, it would be good for keeping people from a little off guard, but it would be lousy for me teaching a class. You know, in the middle of your class, we're going to decide we're going to count. Uh, so he goes in and he checks and says, sure enough, everybody's here. Then he goes in to see Paul, and it's very interesting. He is trembling. He does not understand what's going on. He is afraid. What kind of man is this? Number one, he was praising God. Number two, nobody has left this prison, and this is the spokesman. And he falls down before Paul and Silas, and it says in verse 30, uh, he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He brings them out of the cell to something a little more comfortable when he's talking to them, obviously, and saying, what must I do to be saved? And this is kind of an interesting statement because nowhere before has, they, has there been any reference to them talking about him being getting saved which obviously means either during the worship time that he was hearing him talk about being, getting saved or they talked to him when he was being first brought in. We don't know, but all of a sudden, whatever has happened in the past is now very real, very real to him. And I'm not sure how many people have had much experience talking to people about, about the gospel, but it's an amazing thing when that moment of they want to get saved comes. And it's, you know, maybe you remember it when you wanted to get saved, you know, where all of a sudden it's like, I need to make this decision 
you know, this person's been talking to me. I don't really, I didn't understand what they want, but I want what they were talking about. And we don't know what was happening in their worship. Their worship might have just been a Bible study. Who knows? Uh, because it says that they sang praises to God and they were praying and celebrating God. Maybe their songs had the gospel message in it. We don't know what kind of songs they were singing at that time. But they were worshiping God. And this man heard something before this. And he's going, I want, basically he's saying, I want what you have. I want to be able to rejoice when everything is dark, when everything is painful, when there's trials and tribulations. This is where we need to get to, and this is where we need to be when we get into God's Word. You know, this is why I tell you all, Romans 8.28 is one of my favorite verses. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So, Paul and Silas are remembering this. God's got a plan. We don't quite understand this. We were in the process of building a church. Now we're in jail. And not only are we in jail, we were beaten. And Paul has every right to be angry about having been beaten and being upset about it. You know, he could have been screaming, call my lawyer. I want to, I want to see my lawyer. You know, I'm a, I'm a Roman citizen and you beat me. But that wasn't his reaction. Sometimes we need to be careful about trying to stand on our rights and be saying, God, whatever it is that you want me to do and learn and witness for you is what I want to do. People automatically, and I hear it at the prison, all, you know, my rights, my rights, my rights. Now, they apply their rights to things that aren't even their rights, but, <laughs> you know, uh, but we see over and over people go quickly to the me. And this is the problem we have in our generation. Everybody, everything is focused about the individual. Nothing is focused about the group or what's best for everybody. It's always what's right for me. You know, when we're driving, if you've ever tried to do merging, you know, it's an amazing thing anymore. Nobody will take turns on merging because everybody needs that extra 10 feet of space that, so they can get a half a second ahead of you. And and then the guy behind him, you know, tries to jam in. The guy behind him tries to jam in, you know, and it's, you know, if they would just merge in one at a time, the road would even hardly slow down. But everything is about me. What is my rights? My, what is best for me? Now, it's, it happens in the Bible all over the place. It's nothing new because everything is about self you know, and what is best for me. But it's getting really bad because there's no counterbalance anymore. There's nothing, nothing done for what's best for the nation, the country, the, the county, you know, the town. It's all what is best for me. And we need to be able to look and say, God, I want, and for us as Christians, it should be, God, I want what's best for you and the kingdom, not what's best for me. And apparently Paul and Silas understood that in this particular case because Paul's not screaming, I'm a citizen, I'm, I've been mistreated. He's saying, God, there's some reason for it. Now, he, did not know, I, he did not know the reason for it at this point. Now, we're going we're gonna to get the privilege of seeing what that reason was. But he did not understand it at the, at the time it was happening. 
And this is some of the beauty that we need to look at. God has a reason for things to happen if we are just patient enough to let him show us what that reason is. And there's many times my prayer has been, God, I know you have a reason for this, but I don't understand it, so just help me to stay, stay focused on, your, on you. And it is not easy to do sometimes. You know, and you know what? God's never even promised that he's going to show us the reason. And we might not know the reason until we get to heaven. And I've shared with you all the, the, the one big story that I know. I, I was walking around with gout for six months, in pain, in, in all that, you know, telling God frequently, God, I don't understand how this can be for any good whatsoever. And about a year and a half, two years later, somebody had said, you know, you really encouraged me when I was watching you suffering and still serving God. So, you know, in this particular case, God allowed me to have something to know why. Now, God could have also just waited until I got to heaven and said, remember that time that you were suffering so bad? Here's why. God has never promised us that he's going to explain himself to us. You know, unfortunately, we like him to, we almost demand, God, tell me why I'm going through all of this. And God is saying, I'm in charge. You know, when it's time, and, you know, if you need to know, I'll tell you why I was doing things. You know, there are many times when I was a manager, most of the time I told my people why we wanted things done. But you know, when it was a busy time and I told them to do something in the middle of a busy period, that wasn't the time to be asking me why. And I had people every once in a while, why? I'm going, I don't have time to tell you, just do it. You know, we are too busy for it. Just go do what you're told. <laughs> and God, most of the time, he is master. He is the sovereign. He, is, he could easily just say, just do what you're told. <laughs> and, don't ask and don't ask the questions. And yet he does give us a lot of reasons why often and explains things a lot often and shows us why often. But he is master, he is Lord, he has under no obligation to tell us why he wants us to do things. And yet we as human beings like to always ask why. And it's in our nature because we are number one in our mind. If we truly understood him as Lord and master, we would say, okay, God, whatever, you're in charge. In this particular case, Paul was understanding that God was in charge and was being, being very good. I'm sure Paul had other times when he wasn't being so good because he was a human being just as, just as we are. There's times when you've probably done just what Paul did. You were rejoicing. I don't understand this, but I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to be rejoice evermore. I'm going, to, I'm going to give thanks and everything. And then there's times when we don't do it right. And I've had both of those myself where there's times when I've done things right and I enjoyed those. And there's times when I have not done it right and complained and griped and, and, and asked God why. And then there's other times when I'm going, okay, God, let's just you know, focus on it. And the question comes from the jailer, what must I do to be saved? He recognized Paul and Silas had something different. However, he had, whatever the reason, again, one of those things we don't know the reason why he was able to ask that question. 
And yet he asked that question. And Paul's answer in verse 31. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved in your house. And they spoke unto him the word of the Lord, and to the, all that were with him were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized he and his, all his straightway. And he brought them into his house. He set a meal before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. So the answer they gave him to him was believe. Now, this is a very interesting word because in our idea, we can do all kinds of believing but this word literally means be persuaded. All right? This is a strong word. This is not just, well, I believe something. But this is, I am absolutely persuaded that something is true. And this belief is not, you know, this is the way we use belief. You know, a lot of people think, you know, well, I believe that Jesus was, you know, lived. Well, that's wonderful. I'm absolutely concerned, sure that he was that he lived because I've studied the history, I've studied the, the facts. And when I hear, you know, people go, well, we, you know, you can't prove that Jesus was ever lived. Well, it's pretty good that we bisect our, our history by his birth. Uh, we have Roman letters talking about his crucifixion. We have Roman letters about the troublemaker in Roman in Judea causing all these problems. We we have all kinds of historical documents. We have historians that wrote about him that had no that weren't related to Christianity that wrote about him. Uh, there, over and over, we can show that he lived better than most historical people, and yet people will go, "Well, nah, he didn't really live. It wasn't real." Uh, and this is something that is so funny. People will make the dumbest statements because they have never looked things up. You know, they will tell you that Jesus never existed. That they, you know, uh, there was a thing called the Jesus Seminar where they went through the New Testament and they decided what Jesus said and what he didn't say. When they got done, there was about four or five things that he said as far as they were concerned. Now, these were supposedly theological professors that studied Christianity. I took a class with one of them one time comparative religions and what did they teach for Christianity was Gnostic Christianity which is not valid Christianity her and I did not get along because I challenged just about every statement she talked about when she got to Christianity she didn't like me because she wasn't able to convince me that she was right you know because I was not buying it I'd been a Christian longer than she was alive <laughs> She was a young young lady with her doctorate, you know, and thought that she was really smart. And I coming coming in was not just going to buy everything that she said. Uh, but are we able to sit back and say, God, I'm going to believe. I am persuaded. That persuasion is what's important. I am persuaded that I am a sinner. I am persuaded that sin must be punished. I am persuaded that I can't earn my salvation. And then I'm persuaded that Jesus paid for it. All of that was in that statement of be persuaded, believe. 
Yeah. Now, I've had many, and you know, unfortunately, if you were alive in Christianity in the 60s and 70s, there was a big movement called Try God. <laughs> Just try God. <laughs> well, you don't try God. You know, and the answer was basically, well, if you just become a Christian, you'll see how good things get. So people would get saved, find out that they didn't all get good, and they didn't all of a sudden turn around, and they would say, okay, well, I tried God. It didn't, he didn't work. Uh, my Bible did not ever say, try God. My Bible says, believe. <laughs> and in in the Greek, it says, be persuaded of. <laughs> Not just try God and, you know, uh, okay, God, uh, you know, I'm going to try you like this nice pen that I got and see how well it writes. <laughs> you know, it is being persuaded. It is a much deeper thing than just believing. There are so many people that grow up in a church that believe God. They believe in a God. They believe in a Savior but they're not persuaded of him being their savior. They're not being persuaded that the word of God is absolutely true. And this, all of these things are very important. It's, it's what do you believe is, is the important part of it. And he's saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved and your house. Now, there are many people that talk, look at this and say, well, this is a promise that if you get saved, your entire family is going to be saved. I believe it's going to be more prophecy on this. That Paul understands that you, you believe in right now, your whole house is going to believe. The good news is, if you, are per, if you do become a good, strong Christian, you are noticed by your family. And your family does start to tend to get saved over, over years and time. Sometimes more instantly than other. It depends on how big the change is in people's lives. It depends on what they see. But if we are living for God, people are influenced by our change of life. And the more they know you, the more they see that change. Now, they may think it's only going to be temporary. They may think it's going to be short-termed uh, and short-lived. But how many times that we see this happen is a lot. And especially if the father gets saved... Now, most of the time, churches try to get to the parents through the kids. And you can. You know, you get the kids saved, and you can work your way up the family. Uh, the second, that's the, the least effective way of reaching a family. The second to the best way is to get the mom. And then you might get the kids. But if you get the dad, you get the whole family almost every time. Because dad comes to church, and everybody follows suit with him. It, what ends up happening, and this is happening in so many families, is the kids get saved, or mom drags them to church more often, and especially the boys, if they don't see their dad going to church, get to the point where they say, church is for girls, it's not for guys, because dad doesn't go to church. So it's very important for men to be leaders in their family and show their family what it means to be, to be a follower of God. In this particular case, he's going to get saved, and it says, and it says in your household, and they spoke to him the word of the Lord and to all of them that were in his house. And it's kind of an amazing thing because the jailer takes him to his house. This, these guys had made an impression on him. 
for whatever reason, singing in the middle of the night, not, not running out on him, uh, not griping and complaining about their, their uh, aches and pains, has made a big impression on him. And they give him the witness. They tell him about sin needing to be paid for, the fact that sin has to, that those who sin will go to hell and that Jesus paid for their debt. They give him the, they give him the gospel message. And he ends up getting saved. And it said it told him to all of in his house. And it says he took him in that hour, uh, uh, that same hour at night, and washed their stripes and, bat and was baptized. So he takes care of them and they, bat and they baptize him. Their, their injuries. Oh. They were beaten before they were thrown into prison. And what would end up happening is you were beaten and then you were thrown in, you were just thrown into prison. Nobody, nobody took care of you. No medical. So he went in and he said, okay, now I'm going to take care of you. He's, he's bathing their wounds. Uh, now, the indication was that they were beat with rods, but you know, these guys were not nice with those rods. They would have, they would have brought, brought welts up and and possibly injured bones, so he's taking care of them. He's, he's cleaning them up, he's making sure that anything that was bleeding was cleaned up. He's probably anointing them with the oils and stuff to, that they would consider healing oils, and he's making them feel better, and then he's gotten saved, and the first thing they do is baptize him. And baptism is something that is very important. You know, when you're saved, you should get baptized. And anybody who hasn't been baptized needs to look into that. If you've been baptized, and we've talked about this, baptism has been around for a long time. All right? It did not start with Christianity. It started with the Jews. And even before that, there were other groups that did it. And it's always represented dying to something and being brought to life to something else. And the Jews practiced it. Anytime they switched teachings of a rabbi, they would be baptized into that rabbi's name and this is why all through this time you're going to hear them in whose name were you baptized who whose teachings are you being obedient to and this is why we're baptized in the name of jesus or the father son and the holy spirit um, and we're told to do it in both ways but they're basically we're baptized into god's name to obey god and so they take this this jailer and they baptize him in the name of Jesus he gets saved he's being compassionate he's seeing all these things happen and it says he brought them into his house that at that time in verse 34 and sat meat before them and rejoiced in because believing in God with all his house so he takes prisoners out of their cells <laughs> takes them to his house <laughs> cleans them up and and makes dinner. Now remember, this all starts at midnight. <laughs> I'm sure that his servants or his wife were not very happy that they're now cooking a meal at midnight. And yet, he is excited. And you know, it's kind of an interesting thing. When somebody gets saved, there's an excitement in their life. And it draws on, uh, draws on it, and he's saying, I'm going to give you food, and I'm sure that part of that time was he was also being fed spiritually. Now, I love dealing with new Christians and answering their questions and helping them understand what they've done and giving them Bible understanding and helping them out. And 
I look forward to the day when I can find people that just want to hear all the time. You know, that aren't looking at a watch, you know, all right, hour's up, we got to go home. And this church is very good on it. We don't, you know, if I go past an hour, people don't get upset. Uh, but there are places in the world that if they can get a good Bible teacher, they don't want it to end at all. My dad had that experience one time when he went over to the, in the Caspian Sea area, and they started teaching at 5 o'clock in the evening, and at 1 o'clock, they, they were tired because they had traveled all that day before, too. They're going, I gotta, we got to go to bed. No, more, more, more. <laughs> now, finally stopped at 3 o'clock in the morning and said, we have to go get some sleep. But they did not want it to end. And the next morning, they started again by 7 o'clock and didn't stop until after 12 because the people were hungry for the word of God. Now, here in America, we're spoiled. You know, we're spoiled. Try, you, know, you know, if you go more than two, three hours, it's like, well, you know, you've gone a long time. And I think it was Spurgeon who said, you know, there's coming a day when people will not endure a two-hour service. And, there, and it was, even in early America, you, you met at 10 or 11 o'clock and you went till 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon because it was actually the only time you met, but then <laughs> you just went for a long service. The apostles met daily. We're going to come to a place where Paul is preaching so long it goes after midnight and the guy falls out the window and dies and he gets resurrected and they go back and have more service. Okay. Baptism has always been to die to your old way of thinking and to oh, be brought to, to have to to be brought back to life in a new way of thinking. So this is why that's why we say they always say whose name were you baptized in and, and for a long time it's, I was bapt, the baptism of John the Baptist. Well, John's teaching was repentance. It wasn't about grace or anything else, but it was all about repentance. Jesus is about dying to yourself and, and living for him and, and his teachings, which were radical. <laughs> you know, we don't think of them as being so radical because we've grown up in them. But his teachings were very radical. You know, he taught real easy things. Love your enemies. You know, do good to those who hate you and are mean to you. You know, we've kind of grown up with them, so we don't, we don't think of them as much. But, you know, even in our day, how radical is that? You know, uh, be nice to all those guys that are being mean to you. Be nice to them. You know, love those who don't like you. You know, real easy things to do. You know, even with God in them, they're not easy to do. And, you know, his teachings are radical even today, even though we're kind of used to them now. We've, we've, they're, they're normal to our hearing, at least in America. And yet, they're still radical. And we have a hard time living out the very simple things that he told us to do. And because it all has to be through him that we can do these things. So he's there, he's, having their, he's been putting meat in front of them. He spend, they spend the entire night with them. Um, he says that they set meat before him and rejoiced, believing with, in God. He just got saved. 
And you know, one of the things I hope is that you remember the joy of your salvation when you got saved. The lifting up of the sin from off your, off your back. The cleanness that you felt knowing this is where he's at at this moment. He has just been delivered from sin. He has been given joy and his joy is being ecstatic. And he's serving. He's serving God right from the very beginning to these men. And then it comes in verse 35. And when it was day, the magistrate sent the sergeant saying, let those men go. And the keeper of the prison told this saying to Paul, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said unto them, you have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison, and now do they thrust us out privately? Nay, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. And the sergeants told these words to the magistrates, and they feared when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and besought them and bought, brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. And they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comfort them, comforted them and departed. All right. The day before, the magistrates, the, the rulers of the court, had Paul and Barnabas beaten with no trial. And again, remember, we talked about that beating before. Rome was very racially segregated, not by the color of skin, but by nationality and all of these things. You could do anything you wanted to a slave, including kill him. I mean, the slave was absolutely worthless. Somebody who wasn't a slave, you could beat them, you could do what you wanted, you couldn't kill them, but you could beat them, you could do just about anything you wanted to them. A Roman citizen, oh, they had rights. <laughs> They had rights. You, if you were going to beat them, you better have had a court case with them. You better had, have had witnesses. You better have had a, an actual case on this. Paul and Silas had been apprehended by these men that owned that slave that they cast this, this, this uh, demon out of. They arrested him. They drug him to the courts, and the courts did not have a case. The case, they just condemned them. Why? Well, because they appeared to be Jews. And Jews did not have Roman citizenship. They weren't protected by all of the, all of the, the protections that Rome would have given their citizens. So they beat them, threw them in prison. And then in the next morning said, okay, we're done with them, you can let them go. You know, hey, jailer, you just let these guys go. He passes on that message and then Paul decides to play his trump card. Why he didn't play his trump card earlier, I don't know. Why in the middle of all of this riot he didn't say, hey, I'm a Roman citizen? Well, yeah, he did. God had a reason to keep his mouth shut because the jailer needed to get saved. But you know, Paul is a very strong-willed person. It's hard for me to picture Paul keeping his mouth shut in the middle of all this. Because later on in the book, when he's in, in Jerusalem at the temple and a riot breaks out, the first thing he says is, I'm Roman. 
He calls on his status as a Roman citizen to protect him in the middle of that. Here, he doesn't call on it. You know, and it's just one of those things you kind of wonder, what, what kept his mouth? And we do know that the, the, all things work together for good is that he had to go into prison. He had to go through this process so that the Roman jailer would get saved. This is one of the things that's sometimes very hard for us to know what to do and what not to do if we're not listening to God. You know, there are times when we're going to have to hold on to our rights and call and call on them. You know, now, I listen to a lot of these Christian attorneys talking about how they're protecting their people and, and keeping their rights and everything, and I appreciate them doing that. But not every case needs to go to court <laughs> to protect our rights. Now, because one of the things we know is that our rights are not going to hold up over a long period of time. Our country is changing drastically. And right now, the Constitution is, is still being somewhat held in, in, in where it belongs. But we have all kinds of things going on right now in our country that are totally 100% unconstitutional that the government is doing. And the government is getting smarter on how to make things happen. Because technically, constitutional rights do not apply in any place other than government. The Constitution was designed to limit government. Now, we try to apply their, our constitutional rights everywhere. But the way it was written and the way it was framed is that it has nothing to do but to, to affect the federal government. And we need to understand that, because the government is now starting to understand that it only affects them. And they're pushing the limits on what they can get away with by having businesses attacked, they're having things that, and individuals to attack. And we need to be aware the world is changing. Our world is changing here in America, and we are going to face persecution. And they're going to think they're doing the right thing by doing it. Because one of the things that we're being accused of is that we are very discriminatory and we are not being fair to everybody else and we hold God's standards to things. And they're pushing hard to make sure that that doesn't happen. Right now, the Equity Act is going to the Senate and if it goes through, churches are in trouble because of the way it's written. There are no religious ex you know, exemptions put into it and it was purposely written that way that there will not be you know, religious exceptions. So when we say that homosexuality is wrong, they say we don't care. When we say that transgenderism is wrong because the Bible does speak about cross-dressing and changing all that stuff, and, and we say it's wrong, they're going to say we don't care. The law of the land says you have to accept it. And we will be in direct opposition between God's word and the law of the land, which means we will be persecuted. And we will have to be like Daniel and saying, well, they said prayer's not allowed. I'm praying anyway. Be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They said to bow down to this idol. We're not bowing down to this idol. And to the lesser known ones, if you've read Fox's Book of Martyrs and History, all the Christians over time, they said, we have to obey God rather than men. 
Now, and as I've said so many times, the thing you want to be aware of is obeying God rather than men does not keep you from being punished. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. God delivered him, but he was thrown into the lion's den. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace. God delivered them. Uh, now, Isaiah was not delivered. He was sawn in half. Many of the martyrs were not delivered. They, they, they suffered for obeying God rather than men. The apostles, you know, when they said, we got to obey God rather than men, was after they had been beaten, thrown into prison, then released and told not to, name, you know, not to speak in the name of Jesus. And the next morning, they were preaching about the na- in the name of Jesus again. And that's when they said, we've got to obey God rather than men. And that night, they were beat again. Just obeying God rather than men does not mean we're not going to have trials and tribulations and pain. It just means that the government has some answers to have to do before God when they, when they stand before God for, for doing things that are against his laws. But does not lessen their right. No, nowhere in the Bible does it, do they come up and say, well, you don't have the right to go against God. They said, we're going to obey God rather than men. And they took the punishment that came to them for their disobedience. And I keep bringing this up because we are going to face persecution. And just because we're obeying God rather than men does not get us away from the penalty of the disobedience, which would be jail or worse. And I'm telling us on this just because if you're going to choose to follow God, there may be trials that are going to come your way because of that obedience. We see it all through Scripture. People obeying God suffered. And that suffering, when we do it right, (laughs) draws people to God. And I like things in Fox's Book of Martyrs where people, and there's one that stands into my mind where the guys was tied to the stake and burned at the stake. Before he died, the, the bindings were burned off him. And rather than jump out of the fire, which he was fully able to do, he embraced the stake, saying, they wanted to do this. I'm going to you know, joyfully take the punishment. And people got saved. People got saved because they looked at this man and said, he's absolutely crazy, but at least he's willing to, he has something that is that's willing to die for. And people got saved. We need to be able to have this attitude just like that. God, I willingly take whatever you bring in my way and be able to embrace it and know that God's got a reason for it. When we get sent to prison because we will not accept man's way of thinking and we suffer in these prisons, or we're executed, which will come after the imprisonments. We need to be ready to accept God's word and say, I am going to hold on to God. Now, Paul, when he gets this news of, you're free, you know, Paul gets a little bit, you know, at this point, I think his personality is coming out. All right, I was willing to be arrested and beat because God had a reason for this but I am not willing to let them just release me and not admit that they're wrong. 
And at this point, he now claims his Roman citizenship. He goes, uh, in verse 37, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison. Now they want to thrust us out privately. And he goes, no, verily, let them come themselves and fetch us out. Now remember way back three weeks ago when we talked about them being in Philippi, we talked about Philippi being a Roman colony, which means there's some Roman officials there, but most of the government there are not Romans by birth. They would have bodden their Roman citizenship. So technically, they're second-class Roman citizens. They have all the protections of a Roman citizen, but compared to Paul, who was a born Roman citizen, we find out later on uh, in the book, because they ask him, you know, well, I pay, the, the centurion goes, well, I paid this much for my, my Roman citizenship. How much did you pay? And he goes, I was born. <laughs> this is a serious offense that they've committed. They have taken a born Roman citizen, punished him without a trial, thrown him into jail, <laughs> And Paul could have just have easily just walked away. But here is Paul's personality. Paul, Paul was a very, you know, uh, you, you read his life and you realize he's a type A person. He does not just let things happen. So just being, letting them beat him and put him in prison is a miracle of God in the first place. <laughs> because Paul's personality probably at that point would have been to scream, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, you can't do this. And yet God kept his mouth shut during that period of time so that he could rejoice in the prison and lead the Philippian jailer to, to the Lord. Uh, but now when it's time to be released, it's like, uh-uh. You know, I was silent last night. <laughs> I was silent yesterday, but I'm not going to be silent now. These guys think they're going to get away with it. I'm a Roman citizen. You could let those magistrates come and see me. And the terror that's going to hit them the terror. They have beaten a Roman citizen without a trial. They put him in jail without a trial. You know, and we kind of read this and like, well, what's the big deal? It was a huge deal. It was a huge deal for them to do this. They could be executed for having done this. And Paul's saying, uh, hey, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. And verse 38, and the sergeants told these words to the magistrates, and they feared when they had heard that they were Romans. These guys can lose everything. At the very least, they could lose their position. But more likely, they could lose their lives. Things were pretty bad, pretty bad back then. I mean, uh, you're... Capital punishment was for just about any little thing that happened. So this is, they have beaten Roman citizens. They could lose their lives. At the very least, they were going to be beaten and thrown into jail, depending on how Paul reacted to their, to their request. You know, we kind of read in without knowing the history. It's like, well, what's the big deal? They, they, had, some Roman, they had some citizens beat. They, they kind of they went, went aboard. You know, they're going to get their wrists slapped because like, that's what we would think. You know, they'd get their wrists slapped. Well, their government, their, their legal system wasn't like ours. You didn't get your wrists slapped in Rome. 
you got your head lopped off. You, you, you were scourged. You went on a cross you know, for crucifixion. Uh, so now these guys were citizens, so they wouldn't have gone to the cross. But they, they, they were in danger of some very serious issues here. And they decided <laughs> in verse 30, and they came and besought them. Okay. Uh, they're begging him. They're begging them. Probably, it doesn't say so, but it wouldn't surprise me if there wasn't a financial <laughs> uh, activity going on here. Let us, let us pay you back uh, for what you've, what you've suffered. It doesn't say this, but they're beseeching them. Uh, and they, it says they brought him out and they desired them to depart out of the city. They did not want this to go on in the city. They did not want them being in the city to even share what had happened. Note that they didn't order them out of the city because they couldn't. Here's a Roman citizen. You know, it's, would you please leave the city? <laughs> we don't want any more trouble. We don't want court. We don't want, we don't want what happened to come out. We don't want you to share it with anybody else what, <laughs> what happened. Would you please leave the city? Uh, and again, they can't order them. Here, these are Roman citizens. You can't order the Roman citizen out of the city without a trial, which would have brought everything out into the open. You know, this is quite an interesting place for them. They want them out. They desperately want them out of the city for lots of reasons. <laughs> they just had a riot the morning, the day before. They, now they've convicted them and punished them without a trial. And now they're realizing that this is a big deal. And verse 40 says, And they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them, and then they departed. So this is kind of an interesting, interesting thing. There said, please leave the city, and they went to see Lydia and the church that had been started. And there's an indication that they weren't in, they weren't in Philippi for very long, a couple weeks. And they have to organize a church, put people in charge of a church, and leave. Yeah. Now, what you think about this, you know, how many times did they leave with, with somebody who had just been, been a member of the church for weeks to months, you know, or even, even a couple years? And they left the church with, you know, with that kind of situation. And here they're comforting everybody. You know, you figure that the people would be comforting them, but they're comforting the church. You know, probably going in, you know, this had to happen so that this, this jailer and his family would get saved. If we hadn't been put into there, he might not have gotten saved. No, so God put us in there, and he and his family got saved. We need to keep in mind that we look at, look at the heavens and say, God has a plan. It's not necessary for me to know his plan. He has a plan, and we need to be able to understand his plan is better than anything we could ever think of. God has a reason for everything that comes our way, and he will make something good happen from what happens to us. Now, Paul and Silas were beat. There's nothing good about being beaten. There's nothing good about being thrown into jail without a trial. But the Philippian jailer and his family got saved. 
It was not for Paul and Silas's good. And this is what I say about Romans 8.28. There's, uh, most people want to put an extra word in that, stand, in that, in that uh, verse. They go, all things work together for my good is what most people want to put in there. God did not put my in there. He says it works out for good, for the good. Whatever God determines is good is what it works out to be. Now, when I suffer, and I suffer and others get benefit from it, there will be a reward in heaven. So in the long run, it is for my good. But as far as this world is concerned, it's not necessarily for my good. Not necessarily for my good at all. When we read, if you've read The Hiding Place, Corey Tenboom and her sister are, are sent to prison while they help Jews for helping Jews escape the country. That was a good thing. It seemed like a very good thing. They were helping Jews get out of the country, and, and God let them get arrested and sent them to concentration camp. Why? I don't know. Corey, Corey was able to make a ministry out of sharing with people what God had done for them and to show the love that God had put in her heart for them. But in the process, her sister dies, her father dies, her brothers die. We're going to prison. And we go, God, how was that good? Well, millions of people have probably read her book and gotten saved because of her book or been encouraged by her book or books, as it turned out to be later on. Why do we suffer? So that God can be exalted. So that he can be exalted, we suffer. Now, kind of hard for us to understand sometimes. But the most important thing that we ever can do is see God's kingdom increase. If that means, as Paul said, I suffered so that the kingdom is increased, then fine. If I get blessed and the kingdom gets increased, great. If I suffer and it gets increased, great. What is our attitude toward our suffering is going to be so important. God has a plan. Nothing that happens to us surprises him. Nothing that happens to us was unknown to him. And the sad thing is that Satan had to ask permission to do anything to us in the first place. And just as we look at, in Job, you know, sometimes we would rather that God would say no to Satan once in a while. But you know, he has a plan. He's trying to teach us something with what we go through. He's trying to teach others something for what we go, by what we go through. And we need to be ready to just say, God, you are sovereign, you are Lord. I will take whatever you allow to come my way without griping, without complaining. And ultimately, we hope that our growth gets us there. <laughs> that I can go through these things without griping. You know, I talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all the time, and I love their answer to Nebuchadnezzar when he says, you know, uh, you have disobeyed me, I'm going to throw you, and who can deliver you from my hand? And I love their answer. Our God is able to deliver us. But whether he does or does not, we will serve him, or we will not bow down. Now, 
God could, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, God can deliver us from that furnace. We have no problem with that. But even if we burn up, we are not serving you, bowing down to your, to your image. Our God is fully able to deliver us through anything. But whether he does or doesn't is irrelevant. If we're serving the master, we serve him no matter what he tells us to do. No matter what the consequences of that instruction are. But we need to be very careful because too many times we go on, uh-uh, not going that, God. <laughs> That'll hurt. <laughs> and, you know, we read all about the different martyrs in the first century who would not sacrifice to the, to the Caesar. We never read very much about the guys who went up and offered anyway and then repented because they did not take a stand. There are going to be hundreds and thousands and millions of people that are truly Christians, possibly, who do not stand for God. And I'm not their judge. You know, only they know whether they truly believe in God and have made a decision to truly be persuaded that he is God. But it's hard to treat it because what does the Bible tell us? That we call him Lord. And if he is truly Lord, then we're going to do what the Lord tells us to do. And the problem, especially for us Americans, is we don't like having lords. We are self-reliant, self-made people. That is part of the DNA of being an American. And that's one of the things God has to break us of as his servants. That he is Lord, he is master, and he does what he wants, not what we want. And that's the hard thing for us as Christians, is to understand that he is in charge. Now, there are certain nationalities that have no problem with it. They're used to kings. They're used to being told what to do. It's easier for them to just do whatever God tells them to do, even if it's going to cause pain, because that's what they're used to. But for us as Americans, we've got to get over being Americans and know that we are Christians first. We have a Lord and King that can tell us what to do. Then we are Americans and can stand on our, and our rights and everything but we need to make sure that he is first and that we are second and that we will serve. Jesus over and over again said, you are to serve one another. When Jesus washed the disciples' feet, we kind of go, well, what's the big deal? He washed their feet. Well, if you know the history on that, the washing of the, ser of the, washing of the feet was given to your most inept servant. There was really nothing they could break. Nothing they could do wrong washing somebody's feet. You poured some water over them and you, and you wiped them down. Now, I guess you could have a really inept one that would knock them over and everything, but, you know, you would give it to the person that you didn't trust. You know, this is, you know, all you got to do is wash their feet. You're not going to be responsible for sweeping the floors and knocking the vases off the, off the walls and the pictures off the walls and breaking the window. You gave it to your inept one, and Jesus did the lowliest job that was out there. And I've told people, you know, in, in our world, it would be something like going and cleaning the stinking bathrooms that hadn't been cleaned for a week. You know, what, was the, what is the stinkiest job you can think of? And, you know, this is what Jesus was doing when he'd washed the disciples' feet. This was the master, the king, the Messiah, washing their feet and saying, I want you to be the servants of one another. You know, 
we need to be very careful because pride says, nope, I'm not going to be the one washing those feet. I'm not going to be the one serving. And I've heard, you know, many places where it talks about, you know, testing a pastor and seeing what they're willing to do and what they're not willing to do. And I've seen some people that are pastors who have the name pastor that won't serve anybody. They won't do anything. Now, you want me to clean the floor? No, that's not, that's way beneath me. I went to, I went to school, so I didn't have to do that. You know, there isn't a thing in this church that I probably haven't done already to, you know, when it comes to cleaning and, and organizing. Why? Because it has to be done. You know, what is beneath you? And if, if you can think of anything that's beneath you, I can almost guarantee God's going to ask you to do it at some point. Because he's going to say, are you going to be humble enough to be a servant? Are you going to humble yourself and, and serve others? Or, am I going to, or are you going to be the ones that are going to lift up, you know, these are my rights, this is, I'm somebody special. I have met some pastors that you, if you didn't call them by the right title, you were in trouble with them. And I'm going, why? <laughs> what, are, are you really thinking you're special? Or are we lifting up Christ? For each one of us, what is the place that we're going to be challenged the most of? Wherever you're going to be challenged, I can almost guarantee God is going to challenge you in that area and say, are you ready to humble yourself in that area? And be ready. If you're going to truly serve him, he's going to ask you to serve him. Because he is what's important and we're nothing. And the more we realize that, the better off we're going to be. Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity to learn about you. Lord, teach us to serve you. Lord, teach us to be willing to look that you have a plan and you have a way for us and, and help us to be ready to serve in that area. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. 
If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.